You're listening to. Whoa! Welcome back to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu. And I'm Ri Rayu. And we're here to discuss our February book club pick, The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. It is a 600-page epic. I think we have some uh, some discussion of whether it counts as fantasy. Yeah. I think it does. I think Rira has other thoughts. I, actually, you know, it doesn't really fit into any one box. Yes, what, what we'll I, I will agree yeah. with that. <laughs> But uh, it's a book that I read um, about a year ago now, and Rira just finished. And since she had my copy of the book, she has the fresher mind on this story. While I'll be um, trying my best. I mean, you remember like the main parts. Of I the do, book, right? But as you mentioned on our Goodreads forum, there are a lot of characters. Yeah, there are, and we'll we'll get into. Uh, the ones that matter, I guess, because there's a lot yeah. who just die along the way. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to get into it because it's a long book and there's a lot to talk about. Um, this is your standard spoiler warning that we're going to be talking all about the book, all 600 plus pages of it. Uh, so if you haven't read it yet, go read it now. Or if you don't care, or if you know you just want to hear us talk about a book you haven't read yet, cool. Um, so, so let's get into it. The archipelago of Dara was once divided into seven kingdoms, with shifting alliances and constant battles, a tempest of diverse dialects and cultures. When a relentless king united the seven lands into one empire, some thought it would bring peace and end the turmoil. Instead, it brought stagnation and suffering, the anger of the gods, and finally a rebellion. Kunigaro is a wily bandit who is more concerned about being well-liked than with the affairs of the empire, until he meets his match, Gia. This free-spirited daughter of a well-regarded family sees greatness within Kuni. Driven by Jia's love and touched by the grace of the common people, Kuni sets out on an unlikely path to heroism and perhaps a daring wager against the gods. Mata Sindhu, the last scion of a family of renowned generals, is favored by the gods. Standing seven and a half feet tall, broad-shouldered, and double-pupiled, Mata looks like a hero out of ancient legends. Determined to reclaim his stolen heritage, Mata catches wind of a revolution and begins a journey to become the greatest warrior of his age. Kuni and Mana become fast friends, and they wage separate wars against vast conscripted armies and silk-draped airships in order to wrest Dara from cruelty. Who? As expected, since this book is very long. Um, and the summary that you gave uh, barely barely tips, like, it's it's like the tip of the book. That's it's like, like the, the first hundred pages, That's like maybe. the first hundred pages. <laughs> There's a lot that happens, um, but I th- I would like to start the conversation um, from what genre is this book? Right, because you say it's fantasy, um, and I, I have a li- like I I have my doubts about that. I mean, there are fantastical elements to it. Yes, there are airships and birds with special gas and mysticism and gods. Yes, and to do with two pupils, but you you're telling me that that's a real thing. Um, it's not so much about a real thing. I, I would say that the book skews more towards science fiction Does than it? fantasy. Um, I mean, yes, there are gods, but I feel like a lot of the quote-unquote magical elements are 
in the machinery. Um, oh. Ken Ken Liu uh, said that his book is silk punk. I think he's the one who coined uh, that right. genre first. And um, I think that is the most accurate way to describe uh, the genre of this book. It's it's kind of like the Eastern version of steampunk. Uh-huh. And steampunk is uh, pretty much like an alternative Victorian era um, science of, fiction novel. <laughs> a lot of top hats and goggles. Well, lots of top hats and goggles, but also like during the Victorian era, it was a lot of like a lot of new inventions. It was the industrial mm. uh, revolution, so you have like steam engines, and you have uh, you have blimps. You have um, you you start to see like engines and like people who write steampunk is is taking inspiration from the inventions that came out of the Victorian era. Uh-huh. And I feel like with silk punk, uh you see like kite like yeah. kite fighters, uh you see submarines that's <laughs> knowing the shape of uh shape of whales in a way. Um and like the airships they're not really like steam based. They they're kind of functioning in a like I think Ken Liu described like the engine to be like a gallbladder of a fish yeah. that's like filled with gas, which is totally not how <laughs> blimps are run. I mean, he devotes a whole chapter on the discovery of these bags of gas within the um, stomachs of this falcon that allows it to glide long distances without much effort, and then they realize that this bird has been like I guess inhaling. This gas that naturally, I guess, occurs within the islands of this archipelago, right? Yeah. I mean, that's I get what you're saying that all of the like fantastical parts of it is explained and actually used in practical ways. Yeah. A lot for warfare, right? I mean, the whole discovery of this gas to create airships allows the emperor of the first half of the story to take over and unify the kingdoms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because he invents airships. In airship warfare, yeah, and like with the with the gods, gods are actual characters. Uh, they kind of function as like the Greek chorus. Um, yeah, that is technically fantasy, but I I do <laughs> I do argue saying like, well, there are, um, like there are books where it's you know pretty much science fiction, but you have like. The society's religion and how like their social structure is based yeah. off of religion, so it it really doesn't fit into any specific genre, and that's great because genre is just an easy offhand way to recommend books, in my yeah. opinion. But I think the way that the book is structured reminded me of like great epics, right? Like- oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> told in the story like it reminded me of the iliad and the odyssey Mm -hmm. and uh those are both epic poems and they are both told in omniscient povs which we will discuss in a bit (laughs) but um yeah like i i guess like it is like i i did think that it was silk punk Mm-hmm. But I also thought it was more of a military, like <laughs> military uh, fiction novel because I felt like so much of the book was like on battle strategies and like conquering certain cities. And I'm like, okay, like, isn't that like half of like Lord of the Rings too? Yeah, 
I mean, in a way, because it like switches uh, POVs between like Frodo and Sam, and uh-huh. that's not right. That's not the same because they're not like in battles or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, but it really, it really did did feel like the Iliad to me because yeah. like Iliad is like all about battles, and then you have yeah. like you kind of have whiplash with like all of the characters because you're trying to get like all this information on like on um, the people who are being affected, people who are in power and making changes to the war, um, having influence in the war. Like, Ken goes deep into, like, the details of a lot of the nitty-gritty of what it takes to mount a resistance, what it takes to even govern. Like, he goes a lot into the government systems of both the empire and also the new kingdoms and empire that occurs in the second half of the book. It's really quite impressive. Yeah. I I think we should talk more about the world building. Yeah. Like, um, I wouldn't like a lot of the culture is based on like Chinese culture, I would say. Yeah. But it's not Chinese at the same time. (laughs) Like you have a mix of like, uh, of like pacifica culture because like uh-huh. there are um there is a race of people in uh the grace of kings universe who are kind of described as polynesians um yeah darker skin tattoos yeah. uh there's like their resources are like coconuts um seafood uh they have like these incredible boats um <laughs> that are like reminiscent of uh, of polynesian yeah boats it seems like there are like a wide array of yeah. facial features it's uh i mean in, in the lore of the the story they the people of dara came from a mainland from somewhere right so they're descended from people who Cross the, I think they call it the um, the Sea of Storms. Yes, to settle in this archipelago, um, and so um, I guess you can say they're an island nation of a lot of different cultures, right? Yeah, like every single uh, kingdom, because there's seven of them. Mm-hmm. Every single kingdom has like its own uh, like culture also like what they are best known for like the kingdom of ha'an uh they're known for like their intellectuals they're known for like their scholars um their their confucius stand-in yeah <laughs> konfiji <laughs> i think that was that was the character yeah. um you have amu which is like more about like i don't know like fashion <laughs> fashion uh just like like beautiful beautiful things they like focus so much on like beauty mm-hmm. and uh elegance and sophistication and then you have um and then i think kingdom of gone is like super uh militaristic i'm not at, like don't quote me on that but like right. i'm but there was a state that was like really into military um and you have and then you have kokuru which is like the biggest state and it seems like all of our most powerful players in this war all come from Kokuru. Yeah, that was the the seat of power that uh, Mata Sindhu's family left, right? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, and um, at the beginning of the story, they had just, they're like one generation removed from this big unification war where the emperor of um, Zana, I think, is the, the, the empire's name, right? 
Yes. Uh, because they come from this island nation, right, where they found the gas. But, like, were they, like, a fisherman village or? They were a pretty, um, they were an island that was kind of far from the main archipelago. Mm-hmm. And uh, people. People considered uh, Zana to be kind of like a backwater uh, kingdom. Um, they made fun of Zana, Zana people's accents. Uh, they their industry was primarily fish, mm-hmm. um, but against all odds, uh, the <laughs> Zana the Zana kingdom was able to conquer the other um, the other kingdoms yeah. through the use of technology. Superior technology, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I will jump into this now. A lot of Ken's um, plot points in his book are based on the Chu Han contention, which happened around 200 BC. And uh, the Chu Han contention, uh, it was the interregnum of... Um, between it was like the period between the Qin and Han dynasties. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, the Qin uh, the Qin kingdom they annexed the other six states uh, after the Warring States period. They they were the victor mm-hmm. and they unified uh, China. So they were the first unified Chinese empire, and that's Zana in this <laughs> book. And um, and they only lasted about a generation too, right? Yeah, they 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 did not last very long. Um, and, you know, after the Qin dynasty fell, you have the creation of the um, of the Han dynasty. Mm-hmm. And um, and the, the really, f- like, interesting thing is, like, each character in Ken's book has, like, a historical counterpart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the battles that happen during the Chu Han contention is actually, like, in Grace of Kings. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I didn't really know my history um i i heard that it was based on the chuhan contention so i was like okay after i finish this book i'm gonna <laughs> look stuff up and i, I mean, was really surprised at how much he took inspiration from yeah i mean i knew he was inspired by the han dynasty the stories of like heroes from the han dynasty um he says to himself in the dedication of the book uh, but i wasn't really aware of like how much of the story follow the same beats um and i imagine a lot of people outside of china or even in china probably don't even yeah realize it i I do wonder about like the people who um did have a good knowledge on the chu han uh, contention and also like the han dynasty like i wonder what how they felt reading this book because they because like so much of it is based on like actual historical events and historical characters mm-hmm. not historical characters like real historic historical figures so i wonder if they like could guess what was going to happen and just like how fresh the story felt to them i'm i'm guessing that it must have still felt fresh because you do have these uh like fantastical elements. And we have kite battles. You have kite battles. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the historical figures that um, the characters are based off of, like Kunigaru is based on uh, Liu Bang, mm. and he was the emperor of the Han, Han Dynasty. The first emperor of the Han, The first yeah. emperor of Han Dynasty. I think Gao Zhu is how, we, I don't know how to pronounce Chinese <laughs> stuff. Sorry, I'm not Chinese. Um, and then Mata Zundu, uh, his historical counterpart was Shang Yu, and he was also like described to be very tall and strong. 
he was able to like lift this really heavy ass <laughs> sword. Um, he did have double pupil eyes. Right. Uh, I think he had one double pupil, but uh, yeah, that exists. That's not just like I mean, fantastical. I mean, it could just be exaggeration for like the legend. I right? guess. Um, but but the thing is, is like that is based off of like historical archives. Okay. Like whether or not that's true. I mean, like <laughs> someone wrote it down. Um, and there's also like. Did he have like that um, that monster horse or? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, he did become Hegemon King after mm. uh, the rebellion against the Qin Dynasty, and uh, he was pissed off at Liu Bang because uh, in in the book um, King Sufi. Mm-hmm. says anybody who conquers the city of Pan, which is the capital city of the Zana Empire, they will become the king of Gifika. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm guessing it's Gifika. Yeah. But um so Mata he goes and does this like really brutal battle at Wolf's Paw, uh-huh. which is based on the battle of Julu in in real history. And um while Mata is fighting this kind of like epic battle um kunigaru kind of sneaks into the city of pan and through wits he's able to take control of the city yeah and uh, that actually happened in in history and really? uh zhang yu uh, mata's historical counterpart was pissed well, yeah because well mata was all about honor and battle and he like he looked down at anything that had anything to do with like wits and charisma yeah, um, so a lot of the plot points in this book is based on historical mm-hmm. beats. Yeah, like I was really surprised at how much was <laughs> was the same. Like uh, you have, like you have that banquet after Pan is given over to uh, Matazundu. Uh-huh. Matazundu's advisors try to assassinate Kunigaru, and Kunigaru escapes by pretending to go to the latrine uh-huh. and that actually happened in real life <laughs> and uh, Matazundu also um, you know he died by committing suicide at mm. like the final battle in in the river that actually happened and um, the the um, what was his name? Hunokrima uh, the, He was the, the first uh, rebellion leader right? Yeah the first rebellion leader like, yeah. the, the patrol officer who's like if I and like, like we're we're already past our deadline to get the laborers to their right city, right? And uh, um, and they're like, well, I don't want to die, so let's rebel against the Zana <laughs> Empire. And uh, yeah, that like Hunokrima is based on a real real life figure. Did he, he really like fake a prophecy? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he also like became king, and he was really bad at it. He was mm. really vain, and he just. Uh, he died. There were a lot of really bad kings in this book. There a lot of bad yeah. kings, a lot of false kings. Right. Um, and um, yeah, like when when Mata died in the final battle, he was it was it the final battle? Yeah, it was the final battle. And like one of his soldiers said, "We can retreat and go back to your island to Noah, mm-hmm. and like get more support there." And then Mata says, I cannot go back to Tunoa because all the people who came with me to the main archipelago, um, like, they're all dead. So Uh I can't, like, go back in shame. And then he kills himself. Mm. That was also a real thing. So there's there's a lot. And I don't know if, 
Like, can you consider that as like original writing or not? I like, mean, to be fair, how many like West quote unquote Western fantasies are based on like the War of the Roses or um, I don't know Napoleonic Wars or whatever the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how many Iliads are there? It's one like. Well, how many like adaptations inspired a lot stories are a there? lot. <laughs> There are a lot of plays that take place in the Iliad uh, yeah. timeline, but I think I think it's <laughs> fine to take inspiration from history. Yeah. I'm, I think it's fine taking plot points from like real historical events, um, and I do consider it original writing because even if you take beat for beat on history, like <laughs> by like when you sit down to write it in prose, it's going to change into something entirely. Um, yeah. Like, different. Like, Kunigar, like, yeah, it's based off of the Emperor of Han, but we can never know, like, <laughs> how like how the Emperor of Han talked or how he behaved with his, like, close friends. You can, you can like, get references here and there, but you have to fill that in with dialogue, have to fill that in with yeah. within the context of the story. So I do consider it to be original writing. And I think if it sends someone down a rabbit hole of reading upon history of another country, like it did for you, <laughs> I think it did his job. Um. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just one of those t- people who like, if I read like a historical fiction, I'll you love lore. Right? I, I will go hunt it down. Yeah. Um, but we did talk talk about like George R. R. Martin and uh-huh. Tolkien earlier. And I do want to like say that while it does seem seem similar in in terms of like taking history as inspiration and also just like the sheer size of of the world, um, like a song of ice and fire and also uh, Lord of the Rings, they kind of have like this this perspective of oh the past was great. <laughs> and we need to hang on to the past. Like, remember, like, the golden age when, like, elves were still, you know, n- elves weren't leaving the shores and, like, the, and like men weren't, like, fighting and squabbling. And it's definitely not racially coded to mean anything. Definitely. <laughs> but, but, I, but, like, I feel like in The Grace of Kings, it's not saying let's hang on to the past. In fact, it's saying that the Zana Empire kind of sucked and they had cruel punishments they had high taxes and uh there is a reason to rebel but then it's also saying that what we had before wasn't much better yeah right with kings and constant warfare um i think something that really struck me was this search that kunigaro has for like the best way to govern right like He's characterized as a happy-go-lucky type of guy, right? Like, doesn't really take anything that seriously. Yeah. And he acknowledged all the good things that the Zana Empire did for the people. He just didn't like how they went about doing it. Yeah. And Mata is, like, the complete opposite. Mata is the... Remember the good old days when my family ruled everything? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, I literally wrote this down in my notes. Like, Mata is... My family was awesome. Everything was great in the old days. Why don't we go back and reinstate all the nobles? Reinstate all the rich people back into their rightful places. Because he's he's the one that believes in, like, the concept that nobles should lead because they're, like... Divine power, not divine know, yeah. power. Divine power is um, is the emperor. But Wait. he subscribed to the um, to the belief that some people are better than others. 
by who their parents were or how they were born or their bloodlines. Yeah. Right? He is very big on like bloodlines. Yeah. Um, I guess since we were talking about Kunigaru and Matazindu, is, did you prefer one over the other? I mean, obviously, Kuni was the more relatable person, right? Because he, as someone who lives in a kind of democratic society, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, you're, you're definitely set up to sympathize with like Kuni's uh, perspective on things. Especially when Mata's perspective is, yeah, nobles are better than commoners. Mata seemed to actively look down on people who were good at their jobs but were not born of a certain rank, right? He, yeah. He was actually really condescending to Kuni, right? Yeah, he was. He was just like, oh, like... You're pretty good for a commoner. Yeah, you're pretty like, good for a commoner. And also just uh, how merciful he was at like he's just like oh like you have to like teach these commoners how <laughs> how like the rules work otherwise they will like mess up the social order and yeah. Kunigar was like that's what I want to do mess up the social <laughs> order <laughs> and I mean he was very much and his followers kind of saw him the same way where he was the hero he was your prototypical like epic fantasy hero like he was a good warrior he could fight good um, he can inspire people by fighting good. All he really could do good was fight, right? Yeah, which and, which is correct historically <laughs> as well. And Kunigaru um, kind of liked the fact that he was portrayed as like not fit at all. Like he was kind of a, oh yeah, he had like a beer belly, yeah. and like people <laughs> made fun of him for like his figure. Yeah, yeah. For for me though, like like I I said in the Goodreads forum when I was like two hundred pages in, I'm like I was like I don't. I don't know who to root for. Like, oh. and that's kind of how I felt throughout the entire book. I was like, I don't really like, there's really not a person that I want to root for. I mean, maybe like more Kunigaru because like, yeah, fuck rich people, <laughs> <laughs> fuck rich people. But, but at the same time, I was like, I don't know. Like he seems kind of like not cut out to be cutthroat enough to <laughs> run an empire and i mean that's just his character i mean that is just yeah. his character like he wants to be he wants to be well liked like it's important to him to be a good leader and to like to take care of the people around him which you know in some ways is great when you're leading rebellion right and i kind of saw like I, I mentioned this um to you offline but I was thinking about on the way in and some of it reminds me of Hamilton really like the first half is all about the rebellion and fighting the battle and the second half is all about like okay now what and the conflicting um, you know conflicting ideologies and well in Grace of Kings there's still a lot of battles in the second half yeah but you start to see like even from the beginning Mata and Kuni were were friends but they weren't really friends right because Mata was always using him like Kuni I felt like Kuni was always more earnest in what he was trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, the, the whole reason he took over the city of Pan was because the opportunity presented itself, and he took it. Like he was, like Kuni was always characterized as an opportunist, yeah, right? a hustler the, opportunist. And this is like, oh, yeah. let me do the most interesting thing. Yeah, and oh my god, I just 
really hated it every single time. He was like, "Hmm, this like <laughs> times do interesting things," and I'm like, "God, how many times this is going to appear in this book?" He's the wild card. He's the wild card. No, just like the phrase, like the most interesting thing. I'm just like, I get it, I get it. Well, I mean, but at the same time, <laughs> I don't want to read it like 20 times I in mean, this book. Eventually, the even the gods started saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so this book is written in an omniscient point of view. So mm-hmm. you, the reader, kind of like knows everybody's thoughts, and uh-huh. uh, Ken Liu head hops among all of the characters to relay information. Uh, what did you think about that narrative style? Because it's not really used in in a lot of books. I guess what I can say is I didn't think much of it. To me, it was just how it was written. <laughs> I did recognize that we were jumping around a lot, but I kind of just thought this was just what like epic stories do. I mean, I, I mean, like Celeste Ding's books are also omniscient point of view, mm-hmm. so she head hops a lot as well. Yeah. Whereas, um, but like the difference for me was that I didn't really have any emotional attachment to any of the characters. I don't know if it's because you head hopped a lot, but in Celeste Ng's book as well, like there's a lot of head hopping. Um, I think it was just because there didn't seem to be a lot of character development. Like each character seemed to be kind of like an embodiment of a philosophy. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, cool. I know that like this person stands for this and this person stands for like, you know, like rich people and traditionalism <laughs> and all that stuff. But I didn't really get to like really have a deep understanding of each character except for maybe like Kunigaru and Matazundu who are like the main characters in in this book I mean you spend the most time with them for sure yeah and... but but even then I'm like like what did what did I write here it's like how did Kunigaru and Mata become brothers they don't seem to get along <laughs> and it's and you just kind of like jump in uh without like any kind of like growth between them well I mean I thought about that too and it always seemed like a one-sided thing. Again, like it always felt like Mata Sindhu was putting up with Kuni uh, because he was useful to him, yeah. right? And like Kuni allowed him. Like their first big victory together was basically um, taking over Zudai, Zudi again. Yeah, and doing so by like having Mata fight and like do like duel people one on one on with a kite. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think they were brothers in arms because they had the common goal. But in terms of how they saw each other, I mean, it, it felt like Kuni saw Mata as someone cool that he wanted to like yeah. hang out with. And but then Mata was like more condescending, like yeah. being like, oh, you're you're like a good. It's like, you know, it's a good time being around you, but you're still like my inferior. Yeah. And I think um, that's what led to the jealousy of like all these victories that Kuni kept racking up because of his guile and wit. Whereas Mata was like, like pretty much like fighting these hard battles and not getting as much out of it. Yeah. I mean, he considered Kuni as a strategy to be tricks and dishonorable. And I I get that. I understand that. But I guess like my issue with a lot of the omniscient point of view uh, head hopping was that there was a lot of like relaying information. And I wish that I saw it more in a scene rather than Mm. just like having a character just kind of think it (laughs) or like the author just telling us what the character is thinking instead Mm. of like seeing it in action. And that's just like, I I think that's just me like who has a screenwriting degree being like, (laughs) please like have the characters like 
show and not tell. And, you know, I hate that phrase, show and not tell. <laughs> but, but like, I, I did wish that there was more, like, like you, you could interpret more, from, uh, more about the characters through actions rather than through inner dialogue. Hmm. I wonder if it's because I haven't actually read the book in about a year. But to me, like, I still remember the details about how all the systems worked in this world. Yeah. The government systems and what makes them unfair, right? Because he has all these anecdotes about how families are affected by the Corvi system of the Zana Empire and also, like, Cooney developing his, like, his new philosophy. Yeah. And philosophy in general, like, there's a lot of... um. A lot of description of the Confiji school of um, was the was the philosophy um, moral moralism right yeah moralism is is Confucius and then there's like other schools of thoughts and I did enjoy how much of the culture is like I, I think it goes back to what you're saying I've seen these scenes in like Chinese period dramas before like mm-hmm. these public squares where scholars debate each other on like philosophy and and politics. And to see it like described on page, I thought was pretty refreshing for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one really big difference between like Western epics and uh, Eastern epics is the importance of like scholar, <laughs> like scholarship. <laughs> like, I feel like it's so it's such a big deal in East Asian history. Being like, oh, like this person rose up the ranks because of their education. Yeah. Like, how often do you see that in Western epics? It's <laughs> like, yeah, it's not really built into, like... Uh, I mean, Western epics, Mata would have won. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, there's a problem with that. Like, uh, like imagine if Achilles became a king, like, uh-huh. in the Iliad. It's like, no one's going to stay alive for that long. <laughs> like, like, what do you do with someone like Mata who only knows how to fight like yeah. it's not really good for government and who only recognizes strength right and that's kind of what led to his downfall when he does take over as hegemon is the whole like um only rewarding people he likes and really just messing up the entire like system yeah right um i i'm trying to think like oh yeah going back to like the povs i think <laughs> one really good thing about it was how these minor characters like even though they were going to die really soon you got like a really good glimpse of their of their thought process mm-hmm. um i mean like one of my i mean he stayed on for a long time but one of my favorite characters is uh Kindo Morano who is the Was that the accountant? Yeah, that was the accountant. <laughs> <laughs> the accountant being like the best general ever. Yeah, yeah, like when yeah. when um Kopu, the I think about Kopu Krapu. I I like don't remember his if, name. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the advisor yeah. of um, Emperor Anishi, who he, like pretty much. Yeah, he assigned the accountant to be the general because he wanted him to fail, right? Or mm-hmm. he thought he would fail at it, uh, but then he turned out to be super good at it. I don't know if he like expected him to fail. I think he was just so tired of him asking like stupid questions, like really like minutial detail like details about taxing he's just like oh my god i wish this guy would like stop bothering me about like taxes and like and like policies what if i just made him a general he could just die in the front lines or 
you know, he'll probably, yeah. it's just like, whatever. Like, he needs a job to do. Like, might as well make him general. Yeah. And I love the fact that he was so good at his job, <laughs> even though he was, like, from the Zana Empire. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, it was just like, I, I, like, I think it's really funny because uh, Ken Liu, like, he used to be in tax law like i think he was a tax, i think he was like a tax lawyer before oh. i mean he was also a programmer I mean, these details make sense then like these this attention to detail yeah i mean like he was a programmer he also like studied law so uh-huh. like a lot of like the really small details about like how taxes are made and how like like small businesses are are run in like each city uh-huh. like that comes from his background <laughs> and i thought that was really really funny yeah um, i mean you can really picture how this whole economy works together and why like splitting everything up to 18 random kingdoms makes no sense from like a governance standpoint yeah like like another criticism that i had about uh about the book was things seem to go a little bit too easy for kunigaru (laughs) like like i feel like i don't know if it's because he had like such a competent team Mm. but like i was like okay yeah like his setbacks don't even seem like setbacks (laughs) like he just keeps winning with his wit and he is he's able to get away with so much because he is quote-unquote merciful i think it comes down to the two different philosophies between him and matra right like he believes in like having the best person for the job do the job right and like trying to like figure out what that what that what those roles are and Mata is you will t- you will do what i tell you to do right he's a very much top down like the, i am the master i am the leader i mean like the only really big setback that i that i can remember from the book for uh, kunigaru was when they're stuck in the mountains and like the airship wouldn't go up so uh-huh. like his his wife gia like had to um, stay behind. Stay behind, along with like some of his officers. Uh-huh. And I was like, that was the setback. Like, <laughs> that was it. I feel like he's winning at everything. Well, there's and, also like he got demoted to like the smallest island. On but the even that wasn't a setback like, because that was like his foundation for like his own rebellion. Yeah, for his <laughs> own rebellion. And whereas like with Mata, I was like, you cannot be this stupid. Like, how are you making such bad decisions and like i mean like i understand but at the same (laughs) time like i understand because he is like like that is his mindset he is a warrior that's how he was raised right by that's how he was raised i don't know i feel like his uncle would have you know been a better governor like he would have probably advised him better probably but then they they both fell in love with the same woman yeah uh, more about that later (laughs) i have a lot to say about kakomi um yeah, I just I was just like, why are you making such bad decisions? You have advisors telling you that these are bad decisions. But he was raised to believe that might is right. Like he's even, the mightiest of them all. Like he, I think the big shift was when uh, his uncle died mm-hmm. uh, because, like, he his uncle was just like, you're going to be in the rear guard and. Like you, you're not going to be the marshal of of the army that's going to invade uh, Wolf's Paw, and uh, and then like after his uncle dies, Mata's just like, nope, I'm going to take over the military. So <laughs> once he once he gets to Wolf's Paw, he burns down all of the ships and makes his makes his army like pretty much like 
just like plow right through into the enemy's forces being like, hey, you have three days of rations. If you want to survive, you need to kill the enemy soldiers in order to take their rations and in order for you to survive, which is also something that happened in history. And I don't think it's <laughs> I don't think it's a good strategy because it's like I, I'm I'm always someone who's like, have a backup plan, always have an extra plan. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes to show that or went to show that he was willing to treat his people the same way that the Zana Empire treated the common people, right? Like, you're all resources for me. You will do whatever I say. Because that was the that was one of the things that Kunigaru fought against was the the system of like conscription, right? Yeah. Um, another favorite character of mine was Luan Zia. Uh, Luan Zia, yeah. Luan Zia. Um, I think he was like the first character other than Kunigaru and Mata where I was like, yes, someone with a unique skill. Someone, <laughs> like someone who seems to be more fleshed out. So, um, so Luan Zia is from the kingdom of Ha'an, which mm-hmm. is known for its scholars. Right. So he comes from a family where... Um, like pretty i think he's like the third generation of just like kind of the equivalent of like an imperial scholar okay uh i'm not sure if it was imperial scholars but he came from a family of really smart people yeah really smart nobles <laughs> and ken lu does a good job of like framing the scholars of Ha'an as like super up their own butts well <laughs> well, it was like really cool because um, even commoners who run like small businesses, like restaurants mm. and like uh, and just like regular merchants, they have a pretty good education. They're able to uh, do mathematics. They're supposed they're able to debate on politics, right. and all of that is lost after Zana uh, takes over Ha'an, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, like after the Zana empire unified all not you i guess unified yeah i mean they they took over yeah after they annexed ha'an like um it's already like a general like a second generation of like ha'an uh children Mm -hmm. and they don't know like what they're um they don't know that like there was like this great intellectual society because they're not given the same opportunities and uh and Luanzia is kind of like, like that's part of his mission. It's to like restore Ha'an's like, mm. like former greatness. Yeah. But of course, like his priority is to like kill the emperor of uh, of Zana. Right, and he was um, he's in the first chapter. He's in the first chapter, yeah, he was the the kite assassin. Yeah, right? which is already like wow, he is badass. <laughs> like he he is great. Now, is he based on a historical figure as well? I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure he is. Because um, he, so he rem- his character reminds me of the character of Zhuge Liang from the Three Kingdoms um, mythology, who is this scholar slash engineer slash strategist. For okay, it's the probably king. Yeah, yeah, it's probably based <laughs> off of that person. Um, but yeah, like his background story is that uh, Zana invades and his family is pretty much like murdered and he's like the only survivor. And uh, his father tells him um, to like kind of seek vengeance, like like mm-hmm. avenge their deaths. And how he escapes is that um, like one of their servants dress up as a Zana sh- soldier and uh, Luanzia is dressed as a girl. So mm-hmm. that when um, 
when uh, Luanzia is like screaming and like trying to get back to his family, like it looks like Azana's soldier is taking away like oh. like some commoner commoner girl. Uh, and the tragic thing is like that serv- that loyal servant gets killed by uh, by bandits, I think, because they think that Azana's soldier is holding like a poor girl captive. Right. Um, but I really like Luanzia because he travels. He travels like around the world of like out, even outside of like the civilized. Yeah, world, yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and like he is approached by um, the god of wisdom in mm-hmm. in in Dara, and uh, he has this magical book. One of the very few magical <laughs> things in this book, by the way, um, he has this magical book I'd where say the god it's is pretty magical. I, know, I, I mean, it's pretty magical. He takes the form of uh, a turtle, right? Or something. Uh, that's like his Pawi. Yeah. Yeah. Which is his like Patronus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Symbol, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, like Luanzia has this has this book that records like all of the discoveries, all of all of the teachings that uh, he comes up with in his journey, and uh, it's it's pretty cool because that that book pretty much like hmm. is uh, like. It's a huge asset in the uh, rebellion against the Zana Empire. Yeah, because it like teaches, uh, like it teaches them like how to build, like build weapons. And <laughs> I mean, I-, I remember you talking about how you felt like a lot of the characters don't really have like big arcs, but I feel like Luanzia has a pretty. Big Luanzia arc. has like yeah. a great arc, and also like uh, I said this earlier, I couldn't really get emotionally attached to any of the characters Mm -hmm. because it just seemed like they were kind of like emblems of philosophies and there was just kind of like this distance from um like i don't know like it just seemed like the characters were advancing the plot rather than like having the reader get like reader (laughs) grow uh with the characters like for george rr martin's uh song of ice and fire um, I think one thing that that book does really well is to like have the reader be really emotionally invested in specific characters, like their favorites. Uh-huh. And the reason why, like, you get so shocked while you're reading the book <laughs> is because you're cheering for um, certain characters to like right. to like make it, but you know that they won't. You know that like the world that they live in is so unpredictable, and that's why right, random people die. That's true. Like. As precarious as the situations Kunigar finds himself in, he's never really in any mortal danger, right? He's always like, you always figure he can, like, I guess Kenlu doesn't really set the stakes for the main characters. That's true. Right. Yeah. And maybe because they're meant to be these, like, epic heroes that, like, are pushing the plot along. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, even though I wasn't emotionally invested in the characters, like, I don't see that as, like, a terrible thing because I feel like this book is it's written in a way where it kind of reads like a history book like a history text mixed in with like military strategies and tax <laughs> taxes uh, and like in the Iliad and Odyssey like mm-hmm. I don't feel emotionally attached to any of the characters but yeah. does that make the story like less interesting no so I, uh, I'm yeah. okay with it <laughs> I do agree that like besides the main like characters of kuni mata um luan and probably Jin. like mm-hmm. there there wasn't a lot of um dimension to the other characters like they were just like 
pieces on the board for like the main the main players yeah. to, to like move right yeah like if you asked me to um, state the differences between like all of the advisors that kind of show up, like the advisors and like the regents yeah. in, in this book, I'm like, I don't know. They all want power. And yeah. like they kind of seemed like they wanted the same thing and didn't. <laughs> Like, other than, like, I remember the tax collector general because he was a tax collector. <laughs> like, yeah. for all the other uh, advisors, I really can't pick out, like, a unique trait about them. That's true. Like, I'm trying to think of Cooney's, like, retinue. And the only person I can think of is his childhood friend who's, like, a mobster. Right? Rinkoda, I think. Rin- yeah, Rinkoda. Yeah. And uh, Kogo Yulu. Or Kogo Yelu. Yeah. Those were, that was his guard captain or? That was the guy who came up with all the strategies and uh-huh. like was oh, right. able He's, to he like. He was the, like the, the, um, the prime minister. Yeah, right? he was like yeah. the prime minister. I mean, important role. And, you know, <laughs> he was able to like do all these like great things for his government. Mm-hmm. And he was like truly capable. And I, and I really like capable characters because <laughs> it makes me like so satisfied whenever someone does like someone is actually good at their job. Yeah. Um, but aside from him, aside from him being like very smart and being very good at his job, I can't tell you like any <laughs> like any personal trait about him that like stands out. Yeah. Okay. But that but that's fine. Like yeah. Uh, so what did you think about the shift at the middle? Right. So the first part of the book is about the rebellion against the Zana Empire, and the second half is about pretty much like a civil war within the civil war. In the Civil War, not only, like, because, like, the gods within the story, like, mm-hmm. they play the role as the Greek chorus, but also they, like, they do things to push the story along. They're not passive characters. They actively, like, guide the characters. And they pick sides. And in the first part of the book, they're all behind um, the rebellion, except for... Kiji, the uh, god of Zana. Yeah. Um, and then in the second part, they like all pick sides. Yeah. Right. Which which is kind of like what happens with uh, the seven kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Like they like before the um, before the war is over, like you have like other uh, other kingdoms like Kokuru and uh, um, I can't remember like <laughs> <laughs> like. Uh, you have all the other kingdoms like fighting for a territory. It's mm-hmm. like they're like, oh, before the Zana Empire, Empire we had we this. had this land, but then we lost it, and it's mm-hmm. rightfully ours. And they're like squabbling amongst themselves even before victory well, has been obtained. Even during the rebellion, right? Like both Kunigaro and Matasindu were leaders of this rebellion army, but they were also still serving the king of um one of the kingdoms, King Sufi. Yeah. Yeah, but that's yeah. just like that's just geopolitics, you know. <laughs> like it, it doesn't matter like which, um, like which country, like e- like East Asia or like the <laughs> Americas. There's always geopolitics. Right. There's always like like even before the actual war is won, you're trying to get as much territory, as much resources as possible uh-huh. because you know that once the war comes to an end, that's when the real fight happens. Yeah. And, like, the second half of the book starts putting everything in stark contrast between the general, like, philosophies behind how Kuni governs and how Mata governs, right? Yeah. 
I think it's also just like how Mata tries to rule with an iron fist, Mm -hmm. tries to uh, like his way of solving uh, like solving problems is just sending soldiers and like killing people or having these like very harsh, uh, like harsh punishments to family members Mm -hmm. and unjustly, uh, you know, moving people from their positions depending on uh, their birth. and Which is kind of how the Zana Empire kind of did things in the more, like, bureaucratic way. Yeah, but it also wasn't good. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Kuni gets banished to this little island. Dasu. um, And when he gets banished, that's when... He's separated from his family, right? His, yeah. His wife. Uh, Gia and his children yeah. are being held hostage by, uh, by, Mata. by Mata. And uh, Kuni is sent to the distant island of Dasu. Yeah. He is called the king of Dasu, but there's really like nothing there yeah, by the, when, he, when he gets there. <laughs> and I think the real difference when it comes to like governing skills is that before um, – before like the rebellion became like um became big mm-hmm. kuni was the duke of zudi right. and he has some um some governing experience even though it was like a small uh, small city and then with dasu even though he's um you know the king of an entire island it's still small enough that he can like get some practice i would say <laughs> whereas like with mata like he only has experience with um war war yeah. and like you know people are not soldiers <laughs> they don't <laughs> like like people like you can't just um rule people based on like it's like oh you're a soldier you're gonna like have to obey me like um yeah so i, I feel like with like mata he doesn't really have the temperament or the experience of, of like politics or even the open-mindedness of seeing p- people's worth right he he is very prejudiced with everybody like he thinks like he believes everyone has his own place whereas with kuni and his like rising status like he starts to bring in women and anybody who has talent yeah like he brings all these engineers and i thought it was really really funny how uh they're like they're like, we're going to spread the importance of Dasu through, like, this culinary program. Right. <laughs> I was just like, what? Like, yeah. um, it actually reminded me of Korea in a way. Because, <laughs> the spreading like, of K-pop? No, it, it's, not, it's not K-pop. I mean, it's, it's culture right. because it's like we, we aren't like, – it's like we're small. We don't have that many natural resources. And at the time, we were like a third world country. Yeah. And it's just like how do you make money until like, your economy uh, catches up so you can build high, like, high tech technology stuff? Um, you sell culture. <laughs> And, and that's exactly what he did. He's like, wait, like the Zana Empire, like one good thing is that it mixed all these cultures and exposed the common people to uh, um, other things, other yeah. other parts of the world. And, you know, back before the Zana Empire, like in order to get uh, exposure to other uh, provinces and other cultures, you had to be rich enough to travel <laughs> and uh, and. That's kind of where like Kunigaru gets his idea from. Yeah, and that that mindset is seeded from the first chapter as well, right? The first chapter is about him 
um, attending, skipping class to attend the parade of the emperor and going around the market and kind of seeing the different like goods and services, like the different goods that are, that have come to um, Zudi from all over the empire. He was always in awe of that. I felt like, like he, he appreciated that. I mean, a lot of the, um, the war between Kuni and Mata is just a series of Mata underestimating Kuni. Speaking of underestimating, uh, I don't remember his name, but he is the scholar king that get, get yeah. <laughs> that gets appointed because uh, um, because he of his high like Confucius yeah. <laughs> ideals, and pretty much like this is when. Um, we're, we're going to talk more about the female characters later, yeah. but uh, Jin Matozi, who mm-hmm. is the female general, f- female marshal, I guess, the female marshal, fem- of, female marshal of, of Kuni's um, army, yeah. yeah, of Kuni's army. Like, even when her army is like ready to attack, mm-hmm. that king of that province, the province is like, it's like no, like, like we're good. We just like she's a woman, like she. <laughs> <laughs> we just yeah. have to like hold our ground because because uh, like. It's dishonorable or what? Like I forgot his uh, his reasons for like not attacking and I mean, ignoring yeah, his advisors. He's like as like by the book, like follower of this like Confucian like um, analog. Yeah, of um, Confucius moralist teachings, right? Where he believes like everyone having a place in the world, mm-hmm. but and, that being rigid. Yeah. Right? Also, he was following some kind of like 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 war guidebook it's yeah. like oh this is this is deemed in- dishonorable if you attack in this way <laughs> or like you're not allowed to do this maneuver in yeah. in the in in like a water body and you know he kind of followed things by the book and with Jin who is like very non-traditional with her <laughs> warfare strategies she's able to win yeah and um, that kind of highlights the difference between Kunigaru and, Zind- uh, also, and Mata. Also, if, if you follow the rules, the other team knows exactly what you're going to do. Exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, that does. Because like Kuni, a lot of his strategies, which was which came from his advisors, right? From Luan, from Jin, and from his second wife, um, Rasana, mm-hmm. were all about playing on the enemy's preconceptions, right? They yeah. think we're come from here. We're gonna go that there instead. Yeah, right. and um, like one of one of Kunigaru's like strategy that worked really well was uh, getting this bandit to just rob, uh, <laughs> <laughs> rob at first rob the Zana armies uh, like provisions uh-huh. and like take their horses and and food and leave the Zana army with like no backup, like no uh-huh. like no resources from like their main army, and then it. And then he does it again with uh, Mata's army, and Mata's like, "This is this is dishonorable. Like <laughs> he's doing dirty tricks." And it's like, "Well, yeah. so what if it's dirty tricks? He's winning." So I think that's the dark side of the Kuni's, the Kuni Garo strategy is that, like, a lot of it was kind of just like if you like look back on like if you want to if you extrapolate this into like like years in the future what he does could be considered dishonorable right to historians or to yeah they they do mention history a lot in this book of like well um like emperor mapi mapi (laughs) mapi dere mapi dere like with emperor mapi dere like 
he was considered a tyrant mm-hmm. to uh, Kunigaru's generation. But Kunigaru mentions uh, mentions 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 to one of his advisors or someone. He mm-hmm. says, "Well, who knows? In like ten generations, what people are going to think of uh, the Zana Emperor? Mm-hmm. Because he was able to build all these infrastructures. He was able to bring culture to other provinces and kingdoms and." Um, and like Kunigar is like, well, pe- the people love me now, mm-hmm. but what will they think about my actions yeah. in, in like a couple generations? And I mean, that's solidified with pretty much the final battle, right? Or a final confrontation where Luan Zia like convinces Kunigaro to like break the treaty. Yeah. Which also happened in real life. <laughs> uh yeah, like uh Luanzia like after getting a hint from his magical god book, um he advises Kuni to break the treaty and right. and Kuni's like why? Like we finally have peace. Mata is my my brother, so uh there's uh, like I don't want to do that. And Luan's like hey if you don't end this now, it's going to come back and it's and like more people are going to die. Are you going to preserve your personal honor and risk like hundreds of lives and mm-hmm. and like uh, and es- essentially just like peace for the common folks? Isn't it better to nip everything in the bud and save everybody yeah. like more bloodshed? And that's why he breaks the treaty and yeah. he eventually becomes king because of it. Emperor. 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 Ragin, the first of the uh, the Dandelion dynasty. <laughs> Dandelion yeah. dynasty. I mean, I don't know if that's considered character growth, but it is like, it goes against his core instinct to like want to be everyone's friend. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, like speaking of that, I just remembered like one other stumbling block that Kunigaru had. And that was when like he took over the city of Pan. And uh-huh. he was like, oh, I'm going to like, like he finds like the, the, con- the, the, the concubine, concubine chamber, yeah. <laughs> and he spends 10 days there. And that was when I got really excited in the book because mm. I thought that he would take a dark turn. Uh-huh. But that dark turn was barely a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> like he's just like, like he, he's just, you know, sleeping with the concubines there. One of them is, is like the god Tazu who like creates right. like chaos the trickster god the trickster god yeah. who doesn't side with anyone he's like oh most interesting thing again <laughs> most interesting <laughs> i mean even luan zia comes around to that like isn't this that's like convinces um kunigara isn't this the most interesting thing to do yeah um but i thought i thought there would be like more of like of him spiraling down mm. you know but it just like like he he's just like leave me alone like this like my like I'm lonely, blah blah blah, blah. Mm. and then his friends like, "Hey, snap out of it, dude!" And he's like, "You know what? You're right. I should become a good person and a good leader again." And I kind of wanted him to become like, like I wanted him to. I, I like I don't know what I wanted him to do. It's just I, more I was, than I was rooting for him to like not, not become a jerk but he should have become like i feel like that struggle should have been like much longer mm. and the th- and the thing about this book is that time moves so quickly yeah like you go from one chapter and it's just like oh that was two years ago and you're like what <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that's part of what makes it epic right? i mean it's it's necessary but sometimes <laughs> like sometimes i'm just like wait like 
like they invaded the city two weeks ago and then like two pages in you're like oh never mind they're like <laughs> that that army is like all dead or they're retreating and yeah. things move so quickly uh in this book and i mean it's understandable lots of, lots of grounds to cover um I feel like I'm constantly criticizing this book, but I did no. enjoy. I did enjoy it. Um, I just kind of wish that all of the battles were kind of like consolidated. I just feel like there were See, like the pacing kind of was weird. I, I enjoyed the battles. I think um, me the way that I read too. I'm like I'm not. I'm not critically reading the whole thing, you know? I, I don't <laughs> plan to critically read. It's just it's just my feelings. Like I felt. Like, I understand, like, the time skips, and those were, like, completely mm. necessary in, in the scope of an epic. But there were times where I was like, okay, there's a battle, it's really interesting, and then it's like, oh, no, like, <laughs> retreating, or, like, nothing happens. And it just felt like there was a lot of a lot of battles, but not all of them mattered. I mean, yeah. I mean, to me, it felt like reading, like, the record of, like, like a historical record, like yeah. you were saying. So, to me seeing like reading how the battles turn like we're turning out like seeing the strategies and the tactics kind of play or or, or play out um to me i didn't mind it i think that's just the type of book yeah story it's, it's a it's be. a narrative <laughs> yeah. style it's more like like i said at the beginning of this episode it yeah. is very much like a military like sci-fi yeah. novel like I said, it's 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 an epic, so I yeah. totally understand that narrative choice. And yeah. um, even with the time skips, like I was really glad that the chapters were really short because yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, if I have to read like like thirty pages of this chapter where where the bat the same battle is happening, I I am not gonna be happy. It, but remind- it went by quickly. <laughs> it does remind me of um, there's this like giant epic. Chinese period drama, like sea drama, about the romance of the three kingdoms, and the battles do kind of play out like that. Like the generals make a decision, the armies carry it out, but then it's a feint, and then you you zoom around both sides where the generals are setting their strategies and clashing, having the tactics clash together. And I I, I really do <laughs> I, I liked it. I mean, despite like my lack of emotional attachment to Kunigaru and Matazundu. I did, like, I did really like the fact that um, power did change them. Mm-hmm. Like, with Kunigaru, I mean, he did, like, retain a lot of his, like, commoner, like, ideals of everybody should, yeah. you know, b- be able to have a chance at moving up in the world. Um, but, like, you know, with him having power, he has to make some really cruel decisions. Yeah. And whereas, like, with Mata, like, he... Like, power kind of blinds him to a lot of open paths, I guess. Like, he doesn't, like, his outlook never changes. Yeah. Right. He, he's the same person, but I think that's also, like, that was also his downfall, right? Yeah. I mean, like, power gave, gave him, like, power as a king gave him, like, greater consequences. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, like, this isn't the army. There's a lot more politics involved and there are commoners and there are, there are like more um, moving pieces. And yeah. if you don't keep on top of it, then the people will turn on you and all that stuff. But I mean, speaking of characters, I guess we should move on to um, the part of the book that I think a lot of people have criticized it for, 
which is the lack of female characters of like real substance. Yeah. Um, I remember on the Goodreads forum, mm-hmm. that was like one of the things I said. It's like, <laughs> I am 200 pages in. Gia seems like a cool character, but man, I really hope that. There are some women politicians and warriors or just some, mm-hmm. like, more substantial women characters. Yeah. And, I mean, overall, there are maybe, what, four or five characters of any importance, right? There's um, Gia, Kuni's wife. There's um, Soto, the, yep. the nanny that turns out to be Mata's aunt. Uh, there's... Rasana, who is the Kuni's second wife. Jin Matozi. Who... Jin Matozi, who's um, uh, Kuni's general. And um, Lady Mira, who is... Uh, Mata's. Mata's, like... Concubine? I, guess, I don't know. His Guinevere. That, that, that was another thing. I was just like, what are you? <laughs> like, um, I don't understand this relationship between you two. But, yeah. And there's... Yeah. Kik- and, and Kikomi. Princess Kikomi, who got, like, her own little... Uh, yeah. Part. So the thing is, Gia is like the only main female character, like, like maybe forty percent way through the book, <laughs> and it's like really frustrating because when you're introduced to her, like she seems really smart, smarter than Kunigaru, mm-hmm. and she seems to be more capable in navigating political uh, the political scene because she's the one who actually gets Kunigaru into politics. Yeah, uh, she's the one who says, "Hey, you're like, you're like a." She's like your stereotypical like first wife, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, she's like, well, you're um, you have to like hang out with like other politicians and and like kind of ingrain yourself in there. You can't just hang out with like your underground CD folks. I mean, yeah. it's good to keep ties, but like you need to like branch out. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who kind of plants. Uh, the idea in Kunigaru's head that like he is the dandelion, like he yeah. has like some great destiny, uh, like he has um, the ability to work his way up and do great things, and um, yeah, it's just sad because that character just gets pregnant and <laughs> <laughs> gets pregnant, and she's like a mom, and she's staying like in under like house, house arrest. arrest, yeah. And, like, she does express her frustration with that. Like, there is a chapter where she's like, I thought I was supposed to do interesting things with Kunigaru. Yeah. But now I'm just, like, trapped in this in this role of mother and wife. Does she start the relationship with her, like, butler in this book or in the next Yeah, in this book. book. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Otho? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it was really frustrating for me because I was like, I, like... She seems like a good character. Good mm-hmm. character. I mean, I don't think she's a good person, but like, I, <laughs> like I think she's a good character, and I wish that she had more agency yeah. in this book. But I understand that. See, the thing is, this this book is taking place in a world where it's patriarchal. Mm-hmm. It's traditional. It follows uh, like the Confucius society of like the man is yeah. the man in the family is considered the head of the family. And like the wife is supposed to be obedient to the husband's wishes and and all that. And I understand that like uh, Ken Liu, he made women like kind of invisible for like the first seventy five percent of the book. So mm-hmm. like when you get to the last quarter of the book, where all these women are entering the military and like having more roles, it's like like you have this effect of like 
it's jarring. Like, oh, there's change. There, there's yeah. Like, it becomes more dynamic, and I understand his narrative choice. But <laughs> my God, like, I, like he uses omniscient POV, and I was like, why, why not have a woman's like a woman, um. POV. POV. Right. I mean, yeah. like he, oh, let's get to Princess Kikomi because, yeah. like, <laughs> I was so mad. Like, I was so mad that uh, Princess Kikomi was just killed off. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. You have a b- beautiful princess who is smart, who wants to do something more. And then she just dies in, like, the next chapter. I thought at least that plot line would go for at least, like, maybe like four or five chapters. I mean, it was short-lived, but I, I thought that was a powerful section that makes use of that omniscient POV, right? Because the reader knows what's going on. The reader can see the machinations between the accountant general and Mata and his uncle and also um, Kikomi's, you know, own personal, like, how do I, um, how do I get out of this? Yeah. Right? Or how do, how do my people get out of this? And, it does suck that she kind of gets fridged in this section. Yeah, she gets fridged so quickly. Yeah. And, like, the thing is she's set up as this tragic character, right? Like, mm-hmm. this character who deserves pity. But I honestly felt zero pity for her <laughs> when I was reading her scenes because, like, I don't know. She just fe- felt like she had no reaction. Like, like everything that I needed to know was relayed through, like... The omniscient POV being like, oh, like she, she's smart, but she, it, she had to learn the womanly arts instead. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I get that, but like, what is her reaction to it? Where, where's like her, right? Wh- like, I need a scene where she kind of shows more personality, but um, I didn't get it, and it was really, like, it was kind of like re- much of a letdown. Like, <laughs> so I think like. Because I've read the second book, and Ken does, like, Kikomi comes up again in the second book. And she actually comes up quite a few times in the second book as, like, source material for other characters' motivations or references. And I think, um, like, I think you're right. Like, the the second book takes place after Kunigaro ascends, right? And when he ascends, he creates the world that he built while he was fighting the Civil War, which is a world where theoretically people with merit and talent get um get to do what they're meant to do that being the new setting for the second book does result in more female female characters there's still patriarchy there's still like old world like preconceptions but there are more females that are more empowered i guess in the second book yeah i mean i i kind of figured um because i was like okay this is a trilogy and clearly uh, Ken Liu is not dis- disrespectful of women. In fact, like through Kunigaru, you see women as like untapped yeah. potential, you know? And it's like. And Jin pretty much like whips that like sexist king's butt. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's just like, okay, I know like this is a long game. I know that I have to wait until. <laughs> like, I have to wait until like the women characters come into prominence. Mm-hmm. But it's like. Like, with Jin Matozi, like, like I wish she came earlier. Like, I wish she was there within, like, the first maybe, like, quarter of the book. But you right. don't, like, you don't know her gender. Like, you just oh, see like her. A, like a Mulan thing? Yeah, like, <laughs> but, like, you don't know. Like, like, you don't know her gender. And you just kind of, like, learn 
more about the character and like have like have her draft more of the battle plans and then like maybe halfway through the book you find out her gender mm-hmm. and it kind of like brings I can see how that would have made a better like that that would have worked out uh, also even, better in terms of representation well, in the yeah. story. Yeah. But also like I have issues with uh Jin Matozi as well. Um like the fact that she is considered the exceptional female because she is able to keep up with the boys in the mm. army and she's able to fight. And I was kind of like like I kind of did like a huh when I was reading uh this one part part in the book where uh Jin's army is losing and mm. Like one of the soldiers says, "Hey, like you need to use the women, like auxiliary force," <laughs> and she's like, "Oh yeah, like I guess we can use them to fight against the enemies." And I'm like, "You're a woman. Like how do you not? How do you forget that you have women soldiers I mean, in your army?" I, maybe that's emblematic of like you know like minorities who make it, you know, get promoted, break the bamboo ceiling, but don't don't use your position of power to lift up other marginalized people, right? Like, I, I guess there's that whole like like not being an ally to your own community because you fought to get here right because yeah. she, she's very much also very self-centered right she's very yeah she is yeah 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 she is very much like up for her own agenda yeah um i just wish that once women became more prominent in the book i wish their asset wasn't oh they're lighter so that they can <laughs> fight on kites i just i just felt like there should have been more i mean that was the voice that rasana kind of brought to Cooney's like court Right? Yeah. Like the don't forget the women, don't forget the, the small those little people who helped you get to you to where you are. And that's also something that carries over to the second book as well. And the second book is where all the like the the little like seeds of intrigue starts playing out with, with like Gia doing the long game, right? Because like she even mentions when she's in during those chapters where you, you see her in house arrest how she's doing this not only for Cooney's sake, but for her own sake when Cooney wins. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because uh, she already knows that she's going to be in competition with Lady Rosanna yeah. once uh, Kuni becomes emperor. Um, I just want to go back to Kikomi because uh, <laughs> I feel like I just haven't vented enough yeah. yet. Um, there, there is a scene where one of the gods like shows up as like one of the attendants uh-huh. and and says, "Hey, you're beautiful, but you can use your beauty to serve different causes, such as being like seducing an enemy and then killing them." And then Kikomi is like, no, like, I'm not going to do that. But literally, like, <laughs> like, literally, like, a paragraph later when uh, um, when Kindo Marana shows up, she's like, oh, I'm going to seduce him and, you know, protect my people. And then Marana finds out, like, she's trying to seduce him and then he uses her. And and pretty much she's doing the same thing again. She's trying to, like, seduce uh, Mata and, like... Right. his uncle in order to assassinate them and like it's nice that she gets like agency at the very very end where she's like oh i'm not gonna let marana like like destroy my people i'm gonna destroy my reputation <laughs> and go down in history as like a bad person so i can protect my people and it's like that's great i just kind of wish that agency and that like realization <laughs> came before you died yeah the gods meddling in human affairs was always like, cause like they're also like competing against each other because the, the God that told her to do that wasn't the, her patron God. Right. No. Right. Yeah. 
the patron god of Amu, uh, what whatever her name was, Tituana, Tatu. Yeah, she's she's like the the one that gives wisdom, right? Or no, she's I don't think she's wisdom because uh, wisdom is the turtle man. Right. This is how we're referring to the gods. So, yeah, turtle turtle man. <laughs> the uh, turtle man and shark guy. Shark guy. Um, <laughs> Shark boy? Tututika. Tututika. Is the oh, agriculture, beauty, and fresh water. Yeah. So Tutu is the golden park. So Tututika is the only god who is like completely neutral, who's like, everybody yeah. should get along and <laughs> and whatnot. And it's yeah. But that was my issue with Kakomi. I feel I feel like she was being used the entire time, but not in a way where I thought it was like narratively pleasing to me. I mean, I don't think it was meant to be narratively pleasing. Well, Her also, whole arc is just tragic. But also like it just felt empty. Like empty yeah. to me. It's like, oh, it's like it's like you're a tragic character, but I feel absolutely no pity for you oh. because I feel like I don't really get a sense of who you are. I have like all these bullet points of like what you're supposed to represent and I don't feel it. <laughs> Sorry, that 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 may have sounded like really harsh, but that no, like I, mean, I I just I I lamented at the death of Kikomi because I thought she would be like an excellent second female character yeah. and she got killed so quickly. I mean, in a book where excellent female characters are kind of few and far between, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite chapters, though, was, like, the letters between Kunigaru and Gia. Uh-huh. Like, like that's one of my favorite chapters because <laughs> I think maybe because Gia is, like, the second half of that chapter, just, uh-huh. like, them going back and forth um, and just... You is guess, this the one with also the sun also writes a couple letters? No, no. It's no? just her and Kunigaru and they're writing secret messages and they're saying like, oh. oh, this is my scheme on my end. How are you doing on your end? And like, I really like <laughs> right. the... I think of the second book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really like the banter between them and also like how both of them are like, mm. we like both of them are thinking political plans on, yeah. on each other's ends. And um, I think it really showed Gia's character. I feel like I got most of Gia's character through those letters because it was the first time I was hearing like a lot of her voice yeah. at, at, in like one chapter. I really wish we can talk about this after reading the second book because her character, um, her character, I don't know if she takes a turn, but she her character gets turned to 11 in the second book when she becomes empress because she becomes like she becomes that political like well she has power at that point she has agency she's not just like a mom and a mom and a wife who's Mm -hmm. like afraid for her life she actually has power to protect herself and to also further her agendas yeah and um her historical counterpart empress lu uh lu ji i think that's how you pronounce it Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm not chinese (laughs) again uh that empress was pretty cutthroat and, <laughs> and did a lot of terrible things. So I'm uh, like, I'm guessing that her story will get more interesting. Yeah. So Lots I more interesting. The second book has dragons. Let's all, I'm just put that out there. I mean, it gets a little. How it, can, it gets crazy. <laughs> how how can you not? <laughs> Um, also, I guess... also, I just wanna I just wanna mention like the Krubins in this book. Uh-huh. They're narwhals. Yes. Yes. The the horned whales. Yeah, the horn yes. the unicorn whales. <laughs> I don't know why that made me so happy 
but I mean, like I was just also, like, yeah, they, they created robot versions. I was like, yeah, you, like unicorn whale submarines. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess um, any final thoughts about the book? About the book, um, it's definitely a long game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have a lot of patience, and if you get frustrated with the female characters and uh, the absence of them. Uh, you just have to remember that this is a trilogy. <laughs> You're not alone. And I think it's Cooney, like part of it is Cooney building the world that we want to see, um, as opposed to the, you know, fascist world of Modest Hindu. Um, but it is a valid criticism. Like there probably could have been more, um, especially within the, the rebellion years of the story, which, which yeah. I agree. I mean, for me, I remember. Again, I read this book over a year ago, but I remember reading it within like two or three days. Like I finished it quickly. So like it was definitely my jam and definitely something that like, I mean, the way it was written, it does, it does move at a brisk pace. Yeah. You can definitely tell that Ken Liu is a short story writer (laughs) because like the chapters are like, again, very short and uh, because there are like these pockets of, of stories with minor characters, like. Yeah, yeah, like he's a short story writer. <laughs> I just kind of wish that there was more um, more perspective of the women, considering that there were so many male min- minor characters who just died pretty mm. quickly. And I'm <laughs> like, they got, to, they got to have half of a chapter. Like, how come there aren't any women minor characters who got that? I think he does a better job in the second book. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, pretty so. sure. Like I said, it's a trilogy. It's a long game. Yeah. Um, if you are concerned that you won't remember people's names or if you don't remember where, like which (laughs) kingdom is where, don't worry, you're not alone. I had to flip through the map. Like there's a guide constantly with with pronunciation. Um, I listened to the audio book and I mean, it helped, (laughs) but because there were so many characters, I had to like stop listening to the audio book and start over I was five hours into the audiobook and I was like, I don't know who's who anymore. <laughs> so I had to like restart. Needless to say, it, it's it's an epic story and we use epic in every every use of the term. Um, I do think that it deserves a lot of the praise and the awards that it received. Yeah. But I also think that depending on what kind of reader you are, <laughs> uh I feel like this is a love or hate book. Oh. Um, I'm not, strangely enough, I'm not in either camp. I camps. Feel like you're in between, though. I'm so really it's in not between. a love or hate book. It's love, hate, or in between. No, I feel like I am like in the 1% minority of like, <laughs> it was a good book. It was, is it my jam? I'm not so sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, I think there's, there are two camps yeah. of readers for this book. And either way, I think you should read it and figure out which camp. You're yeah. gonna be in. Definitely check it out. It's it, it didn't win a bunch of rewards for for no reason. Um, and that'll do it for our discussion of the Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. What are we reading for the month of March? I'm gonna pull that information out right now. So our March book club pick is Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Koran. Awesome. And um, as always, if you enjoyed our conversation have your own thoughts to add about the grace of kings uh, please sound off on our goodreads forum uh, go to goodreads.com uh, and search books and boba join our group and let us know what you think about the book or about our talking points um we always love to hear from from you all um and uh, 
Yeah, sorry. I'm just gonna mention if I got any historical facts <laughs> incorrect, like I am so sorry. My research wasn't like, like I didn't do it for a week. Like I took, I dedicated maybe two days to it. So I'm sorry if I got anything wrong. I think it's fine. If you if you do have any corrections, <laughs> please let us know, and please let her let her let our uh, community know. As always, don't forget to follow us by subscribing to the podcast on Google, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, check out our website, booksandmobile.com. Uh, again, don't forget to join our Goodreads group. And that will do it for our podcast. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Visual Communications uh, for letting us record in their offices in the Potluck Podcast Studios. Um, this podcast is a part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American House Podcasts. Uh, check out more of our fellow shows by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And on that note, Rira, right. we'll see you later. Yeah. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallspruce.com. Peace. Peace.